Sherlock Holmes once summed up his ability to solve mysteries with a simple formula. When you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Which is to say that every mystery, no matter how complex, will always begin with a limited number of logical possibilities. And through the collection of evidence, you can eliminate unlikely scenarios until you are left with what can only be the truth, even if what you are left with doesn't seem likely. In the following case, we have a mystery in multiple likely possibilities. The question is, can we eliminate enough impossibilities to find the only possible truth? This is episode 39 of They Disappeared, The Strange Disappearance of Judy Smith. This mystery begins on April 9, 1997, at Logan International Airport in Boston, Massachusetts. On that day, 51-year-old attorney Jeffrey Smith was on his way to attend a three-day pharmaceutical conference in Philadelphia. Traveling with him was his wife, 50-year-old Judy Smith. The couple had gotten married just eight months prior, and despite being a work trip, the couple was planning on staying in Philadelphia after the conference ended to do some sightseeing and visit friends in nearby New Jersey. Their first planned trip together hit its first speed bump before they even boarded their flight. When Judy realized at check-in that she had forgotten to bring her driver's license with her to the airport, rather than derail the trip for both of them, Judy told Jeffrey she would return home to get her license and take a later flight. That evening, Judy arrived in Philadelphia and met Jeffrey in the lobby of their hotel, the Doubletree in Center City where the conference was being held. Judy had flowers with her as an apology to her husband for not remembering her license and not being able to travel with him. So all was forgiven, and the couple retired to their room for the night. The following morning, Jeffrey woke up before Judy and got breakfast. When he returned to the room, Judy was in the shower. The two spoke briefly before Jeffrey left for the conference. Judy even joked with him a little bit before he left. So nothing seemed out of the ordinary, but despite this, when Jeffrey left the hotel room, he would never see his wife again. According to Jeffrey in later statements, he returned to his hotel room at around 5 p.m., expecting Judy to be there as they were planning on going to a cocktail party together at 6 p.m., but she wasn't in the room. Suspecting that Judy may have went to the party without him, Jeffrey went ahead to the party, but didn't find her there. After searching for 45 minutes, Jeffrey asked the hotel concierge to call local hospitals to see if she may have gotten hurt or visited one as Judy was a nurse. But no one matching her description was reported as being a patient or visitor at any of those hospitals. Jeff reportedly took a cab to the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall to look for Judy. Two places Judy said she intended to visit, but when he didn't find her at either of those spots, he called the police. However, the police made him wait 24 hours before reporting Judy missing, which he did the following morning. 
During their initial investigation, authorities asked hotel employees when they had last seen Judy. One reported that they thought they had seen her get on the Flash, a bus that travels to historic attractions around Philadelphia. Police were able to find witnesses who thought they had seen her acting, quote, disoriented near the Double Tree Hotel. A day after she was reported missing, a sales associate and a customer at a Macy's department store in New Jersey reported seeing a woman matching Judy's description, acting strange in the store. At one point, mistakenly believing a customer in the store was her daughter and tried to get another customer to leave the store with her. Jeffrey and Judy's friends and family distributed missing persons flyers over a wide area and as a result sightings of Judy continued over the next few months until those reports abruptly stopped. With no new leads, police and investigators interviewed Jeffrey again, only this time they were operating under a new theory. A theory in which the questions they asked would need to be more direct and intense Starting with one so simple, it wasn't even considered in the beginning. Was Judy ever in Philadelphia to begin with? Hey everybody, lately it's been a struggle for me to create content for this podcast, just with everything I have to get to in a single day. Life and work create challenges that can throw us all off balance. And because of that, I'm always looking for products that can provide a cognitive edge to keep my mind in that free flow state where focus and energy over an extended period of time is necessary. Well, recently I started using a product called Magic Mind. It's a small shot of natural nootropics and adaptogens that reduce stress and improve physical and mental endurance while enhancing mental clarity and increasing your body's resistance to stress. I drink a shot of it in the morning, and the results last an entire day, without the jittery or anxious side effects of caffeine. So if you want to give this life hack a try, just go to www.magicmind.com disappeared, and you can get 40% off your subscription price for the next 10 days with my code disappeared20. That's D-I-S-A-P-P-E-A. R-E-D, the number two, the number zero. That code is also good for 20% off of a one-time purchase, and they offer a money-back guarantee. So you have nothing to lose and everything to gain just by trying it. On September 7th, 1997, five months after Judy Smith disappeared, an unnamed man and his son went deer hunting in the Pisgah National Forest near Asheville, North Carolina. It was around 4 p.m. when the pair hiked past the Stony Point picnic area near Chestnut Creek, when they found a small array of scattered bones leading up a hillside in the woods, where they discovered a half-buried human skeleton, partially clothed and wrapped in a blanket. Despite the fact that they were hunting illegally, they contacted the Buncombe County Sheriff's Office and immediately reported the discovery. One of the first arrivals on the scene was Buncombe County Sheriff Bobby Medford, a 28-year veteran of the force. The sheriff would later describe the scene in detail, saying that it appeared animal predation had led to the scattering of some of the remains and that the remaining skeleton was still wearing clothes. 
Near the body was a blue vinyl backpack, which had winter clothes inside, along with $80 in cash. Buried near the skeleton, authorities recovered a shirt that had $87 in cash in one of the pockets. Now, one would expect that such a morbid scene in a remote area would be an isolated event, but it wasn't. In fact, it was just two years prior that Sheriff Medford was working when a woman's body was found tied to a tree deep in the woods off of the Blue Ridge Parkway, just 10 miles from where the half-buried skeleton was found. But if you think these cases are connected, they're not. Authorities had made an arrest in that case. The case of the half-buried skeleton was much different. Authorities had little to go on. There was no identification on or near the body. And until they knew who this was and how they died, their hands were tied. The remains were sent to the medical examiner's lab in Chapel Hill. And after two weeks, the medical examiner's report concluded that the remains were female and those of a woman between the ages of 40 and 55. Also noted was an advanced stage of arthritis in the right knee. Of the other noted findings, there were cut holes in the bra and cut marks on the bones leading the examiner to believe the woman had been stabbed to death. Now, authorities just needed to know who this woman was. On September 25th, just days after the medical examiner reported their findings to the sheriff's office, Police in Philadelphia received a fax from an emergency room doctor in Franklin, North Carolina, named Parker Davis. Davis had sent them an article from the Asheville Citizen Times newspaper. The article was from the September 9th edition, and it had a report on the discovery of the half-buried body found in the Pisgah National Forest. Davis had apparently seen one of Judy's missing persons flyers posted in the Angel Medical Center in Franklin and thought a connection to the body found should be explored. From there, Philadelphia police coordinated with the Buncombe County Sheriff's Office to get copies of Judy's dental records sent to the Chapel Hill Medical Examiner's Office, and it didn't take long for the lab to return a response to the two police forces. The records matched. So somehow, five months after Judy Smith vanished from a hotel room in Philadelphia, her remains had been found over 600 miles away, half buried in the remote North Carolina wilderness. Now, authorities needed to know how she got there and who put her there. Shortly after Judy Smith vanished, her husband Jeffrey was considered a suspect in her disappearance. Authorities had even brought into question the possibility Judy was never in Philadelphia to begin with. So did investigators look into Judy and Jeffrey's relationship? And if they did, what, if anything, gave them a reason to doubt Judy had made the trip? In the early stages of their investigation, other than Jeffrey, only two witnesses mentioned seeing Judy in Philadelphia, a desk clerk and an attendee from the conference. 
After conducting a search of their hotel room, investigators noted that Judy had not unpacked, suggesting that if she had traveled and went sightseeing, she had done so in the same outfit. Eventually, investigators asked Jeffrey to take a lie detector test, which he reportedly refused to do. Later versions of this story indicate he did volunteer to take a polygraph, but only if it was administered by the FBI which was considered odd at the time because the FBI was not involved in Judy's case or the investigation. When investigators offered to have the state police administer the test, Jeffrey once again refused. Now, it could be easy to point fingers at Jeffrey right now. So Jeffrey was 51 years old at the time Judy disappeared and is described in reports as being, quote, morbidly obese and physically unable to bring a body to the remote area it was found in and to bury it. So if we eliminate his physical limitations from the equation, the only other factor to truly consider would be motive. Did Jeffrey have any good reason why he would want Judy gone? According to friends and family of the couple, Judy and Jeffrey had met 10 years prior, when Judy, who was working as a nurse, cared for Jeffrey's father while he was recovering from throat surgery. Both were divorced with adult children, and after a short courtship, they got married in September of 1996. Most of their family said the couple got along very well, although a friend of Judy's named Carolyn Dickey described their relationship as tenuous, and that she believed Judy was looking to spend some time away from Jeffrey. And despite any suspicions, Jeffrey remained actively involved in the search for Judy. He even hired two private investigators and put up a reward for information. And he personally faxed thousands of missing persons flyers of Judy to hospitals around the country. He even did interviews with reporters with his adult stepchildren by his side. But it wasn't until after Judy's body was found that a sudden influx of eyewitness reports around the Asheville area would complicate this mystery even further. Several months prior to the discovery of Judy's body, a store clerk said she had a lengthy conversation with Judy in Asheville. According to the clerk, Judy had told her she was visiting Asheville while her husband was away at a convention in Philadelphia. A hotel clerk reported a similar encounter sometime around April 10th or 12th, which would have been near when she was officially reported missing. At no point, did any of the new witnesses describe her as being disoriented or acting strange? From these accounts, nothing about Judy's behavior was concerning. And of the last theories in the case, investigators believe Judy left Philadelphia voluntarily and ran into foul play. Her family believed she was suffering from amnesia or another similar cognitive disorder. Either way, the story ends with Judy's death at the hands of another person. Two years after Judy Smith was found, Jeffrey visited the area near where his wife's remains were recovered. When asked about seeing the area for the first time, Jeffrey said, quote, 
This seems like an awful long distance for someone to have forced her or carried her. Jeffrey had agreed to visit Buncombe County, hoping that any interviews he gave would jog someone's memory or generate new leads, but it didn't. And at the conclusion of that interview, Jeffrey said that since Judy had disappeared, his law practice had suffered, which he elaborated on further, saying, quote, A good chunk of my work is criminal defense. And now, I feel like a victim. I can't in good conscience continue to represent criminal defendants. Sometime afterwards, Judy was cremated, with the date of her death being April 10th, 1997, the day she disappeared. And Jeffrey joined Judy in eternal rest. On January 25th, 2005, he was only 59 years old. The case of Judy Smith remains an open mystery. Philadelphia police never cleared Jeffrey, but the Buncombe County Sheriff's Office did, in part because they thought Jeffrey couldn't make such a strenuous journey, but he was able to do it two years later, in the same, if not worse shape than he was when Judy disappeared. This is yet another mystery in the dark world of true crime. One in which a woman may or may not have vanished from a Philadelphia hotel room, only to be found hundreds of miles away, half buried in a remote wilderness. And no matter how many impossibilities you eliminate from this story, you are still left with the strange disappearance of Judy Smith. Mm-hmm.